word of the Lord into the book of Ezra tonight. Well, praise the Lord. You know, after teaching you uh, the first couple of chapters of the book of Ezra, it kind of makes me wonder why I have never in the past gone through Ezra in this detail. It is so rich. It is so full of wonderful truths. And uh, I am so thankful uh, to be able to teach it and preach it to you. Praise the Lord. So let's look into the book of Ezra tonight in the third chapter. And uh, obviously we have already seen the return of the people of God out of captivity, Babylonian captivity. And in the third chapter now, we're going to see the re-erection of the altar of God and the building of the temple. The re-erection of the altar of God and the building of the temple. So chapter 3 of the book of Ezra, beginning with verse 1. And when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood, uh, stood up a Jeshua, or Yeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shittil, and his brethren, and builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of, the, of Moses, the man of God. And they set the altar upon his bases, for fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, even burnt offerings morning and evening. They kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required and afterward offered the continual burnt offering both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and of every one that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid they gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters, and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon, and to them of Tyre, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa, according to the grant that they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel, the son of Shilkiel, and Jeshua the son of Jozadak, and the remnant of the brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all they that were come out of the captivity under Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Then stood Jeshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah together, to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord. 
because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Let's lift our hands and thank God for His Word tonight. Well, Father, we thank You tonight for Your Word. We stand in Your presence in reverential awe. We thank You, Lord, for the sacred Scripture that You have given to man. That we may preach it and teach it and hear it and learn of You. God, we ask tonight that You would have Your way in and through each of us. Lord Jesus, anoint us, inspire us, we pray, to preach and to receive Your Word. We thank You that we're standing on holy ground tonight in Your awesome presence. And everybody said, in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated in the name of the Lord. All right, the seventh month, the first day of the month, in the sixth verse, it will tell you that it was the first day of the month, the seventh month. The seventh month is the month of Tishri in the Jewish calendar. In the seventh month, it is a very, very holy time. Because in the seventh month, you have three sacred feasts that uh, the Jewish people would observe. They would observe the Feast of Trumpets, the beginning of the seventh month, followed by the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. So it was a very, very sacred month that we're reading about here. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, according to verse 6, that's when they erected or re-erected the altar of God Almighty. This would be in correlation with the Feast of Trumpets. Say with me, the Feast of Trumpets. So the beginning of a brand new year. It's the beginning of a time of redemption for the people of God. And so now we come to the beginning of a brand new year. It's called Rosh Hashanah. You may have heard it said that way before. It is uh, brought in with the sounding of trumpets. So this is when the altar of God is re-erected. It's re-erected uh, on the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, which means the head of the years. So it's a very sacred time. The year is 536 B.C. Our month, Tishrei, converted into our month calendar is September or October. So it's September the 1st or October the 1st on our calendar when this altar is being re-erected. Say praise the Lord. Now, the scripture tells us that the people have returned and they are back in their cities. Verse 70 tells us that. And also, the scripture lets us know that um, they were in their various places in the third chapter as well. But it seems as just at the time they were beginning to uh, build homes, reconstruct their homes, etc., that there's a call from the leadership to go and begin to focus on the worship of the living God. So they stopped the building of their houses. They stopped preparing for themselves and they go up to Jerusalem 
to erect the altar of God so that they can establish the worship of the true and living God in their midst. So they are putting God first. They are putting His worship first before they complete their houses, so on and so forth. And the Scripture tells us how they do it. If you'll look here in verse 2. Amen. All right, the Bible tells us we have the uh, Jeshua, which is the great high priest, and we have Zerubbabel. He's in the kingly line. They are the leaders, uh, of course, at this time when they build the altar of God. And the scripture tells us in verse 1 that they gather together as one man. Say one man. Okay. So what we see here then is that there is unity. I'm going to talk to you about this. First of all, we're going to talk about unity. Then we're going to talk about order. Then we're going to talk about faith. Say with me, unity, unity. order, and faith. Okay. So what we have, first of all, in the erecting or re-erecting of the altar of God is we have unity. So verse 1 says, they gather themselves together as one man. Say one man. In Jerusalem. So even though we had many, many people, right? 49,897 total have returned. That's a lot of people in one sense. But the scripture says they gathered together as one man. That means that there was unity in purpose for what they were about to do. The work of God is very important. The leadership is in place. And the people are gathering here to re-erect this altar unto the Lord. And they are gathering together as one man say unity. unity unity is very important in the church look at your neighbor and tell them unity is very important in the church if we're do if we're to do the work of God as a church there must be unity now every one of you are individuals you're an individual human being but when you come here tonight into this sanctuary you don't come just as yourself you come as a say with me a corporate body so we see in the old testament israel going up to erect the altar of god they're coming together as one body as a corporate man and so there's unity in this work all right if there is no unity in the church the witness of the church fails if you've got trouble if you've got tension, if you've got people divided in the house, the church is not going to do the work that it should do. And this is what the devil wants. Amen? Uh, he realizes that we preach the truth. And he realizes that this church is the true body of Christ. So what he does is he seeks to stir up strife, tension, division in the house. Because he knows if he can cause division and strife in the house, that the church's ability to witness will fail. Okay? I heard a man say a long time ago, an older preacher who's gone on to be with the Lord, he said it this way. He said, I've never known a, a church that grew, uh, that had a pastor that didn't uh, treat the people right. And he said, I never knew a church that grew uh, the people didn't treat the pastor right. And so if you've got that go going on, the division between the pastor and the church, or the church, the pastor, or within the assembly, there's just a division of mind and purpose, and everybody's doing their own thing, you know. 
you with me here and there's no unity of purpose there in the church then that church will not grow it, it cannot grow and Satan knows that so that's why he church and I'm talking to you as the church tonight that's why he comes and he tries to stir up strife in the midst of our church I remember no sooner than we started the work of God I'm talking about within just a short period of time a few months or so uh, we started the work of God over on Brazos, and uh, just right after that, we had huge problems right after that in the leadership, okay? And uh, the devil tried to, to close the doors of this church before we ever got off the ground going very far. And he used people that was in leadership. Now, you know, I, in those days, I just started the work, and I, uh, I appointed probably people that were not ready for leadership, put them in place you know and uh, I learned a good lesson you know not to move too quickly as to who you put in leadership because if you put somebody too quick in leadership they can create great problems and so I'll take part of the blame for that it was partially my mistake taking somebody that wasn't ready for a leadership position and moving them too quickly because obviously the church had just started so <laughs> amen so I placed somebody in leadership before I knew it Man, they were trying to control me, trying to control things in the church. I mean, it's just a big, big mess that came out of that situation. So I've learned my lesson as your pastor uh, through hard knocks, so to speak, to be very careful about who I appoint in leadership. And I, and I tell you that because, like I said, that the devil almost shut the church down at the beginning of its conception. At the time that we just, just started the thing huge problems you know what I'm saying and uh, well thankfully we had some uh, blessed departures he said well, how many of you have how many blessed additions have you had to your church none but we've had a few blessed departures they went on their way praise the Lord and the church kept going hallelujah and I want you to know as your pastor I stand up before you honestly I thank God they left because they were used of the devil to try to destroy the unity that was in our church. Praise God. And and again, I, I kind of got sideswiped by that because a new pastor, new work, just starting it, you know, over 20 years ago. I thank God we have a church today. But I'm telling you that that's what happens oftentimes is that the enemy will step into the congregation. And you, you may not know this, but the devil comes to church more than some of you do. That's right. He doesn't miss a service. Now, I don't know that he's here in person tonight, but I guarantee you that he sends some spirits here. Because every time the church meets, you have the sons of God, or the fall, even the fallen ones that come in the midst of that church. And you know what his purpose is? To stir up all kinds of strife and division and fussing and fighting. And then people that are not on the same page, you know. So we got to have unity in the body of Christ. Say, praise the Lord. How many of you want to be people of unity? Because it will absolutely destroy the witness of a church. If the devil can step in and cause division and strife and tension in this church, this church is, is going to come to a standstill. Say, praise the Lord. And, and I want you to understand why that is so serious. Because you've got a church that's embattled. You understand the term embattled? You know, a person. There's times that I'm embattled as a person. Embattled. All right? 
It's like I'm under siege. It's constant battle all the time. But it's another thing for a whole congregation to become embattled. That means every time we meet, we don't meet for the good, but for the bad. Paul talked about the church of Corinth. You can meet for the, uh, uh, not the good, but for the bad. They were so carnal that they got together and they, when they met, it just was a big mess. And, and so Paul says, when you meet, you don't meet for the good, you meet for the bad. You understand? And uh, a church can get in a situation where there's so much tension, disunity, fussing and fighting, and people doing, on, doing their own thing, you know. There's no unity of purpose in the church anymore. Uh, that pretty soon, who wants to invite anybody to a church like that? You understand what I'm saying as your pastor? Praise God. I mean, if every time you come to church and the pastor got to stand up and correct this and correct that, and you know, we're always something going on, somebody doing this, somebody doing that, all kinds of problems all the time, you know. Uh, who wants to invite anybody to a church like that? I don't want to. Are you hearing me? You know, I praise the Lord. Now, I love all of you tonight. But we've been in some warfare here recently, you know. And uh, I told my wife the other day, I said, you know, we're coming across some, some pretty neat people out there. We're rubbing shoulders with some neat people. And I just haven't felt led to even invite them to come to this church. And my wife, the same way, hasn't even felt led to, to invite anybody to this church. Why would I want to invite somebody to this church when all we got is strife and fussing and fighting, you know, and all kinds of problems? You know, I'm trying to say to you today, Man, they walk in the door and they go, whoa, what's going on here? You might be able to endure that because you've been in the house for a while, but what about a new convert coming in here? And the church is embattled. It's just embattled, you know? It just, it don't feel right. Just division and strife and tension in the church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, I'm, not, I'm not saying we're all gone. We're all bad. You know what I mean? But we're not where we need to be tonight. Let me put it to you that way. We're just not where we need to be tonight. Okay? Praise God. Amen? So hopefully, by the grace of God, we get through preaching this book to you. We will be. We will be. That's the goal. Okay? Because God wants unity in His church. It's important for uh, there to be unity in the house. Not division and fussing and fighting. i got to have it my way. And I don't, you know... And uh, we talked about in the book of Romans, you know, differences of opinion. You've got to lay your differences down for the sake of the unity of the church. Right? You have to yield to each other. You know, and I think a good example of this is when you're backing out of the parking lot of the church. You look over there and your neighbor's sitting next to you. And they get in the car at the same time you do, start their car at the same time you do. They put it in reverse the same time you do. Who's going to go first? You look at him and you go, vroom, vroom. <laughs> I'm out of here for now. I know what you do. You look at you, you, say, you wave them on, right? You wave them on, go ahead. I'll let you go. That's, that's yielding. And that's the way we have to be as a church. You both can't pull out of the parking lot at the same time. There's going to be a crash. So you got to yield to each other. And a, and a family has to operate that way too. You, you two get two people in a family wanting it their way. You got strife every day. Well, somebody's going to have to yield. Somebody's going to have to give. Somebody's going to have to look over and say, go ahead, I'll let you drive out of the parking lot. You know what I'm saying? 
Somebody say praise the Lord. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, who wants to live in a house where all day long is fussing and fighting all day long? Well, somebody's got to give. If you don't give, it's going to be fussing and fighting all the time. Husband, don't, I'm not going to give. The wife, she's not going to give. Children, not going to give. And so you have nothing but strife and tension and division in the home. Who wants to live in that? Do you want to have your friends come over when you're in the middle of a fight? Call your buddies, hey, come over and see us. What are y'all doing? We're just fighting like cats and dogs. We're about to kill each other over here. Come see us. Well, I doubt that you would pick up the phone and call your friends and ask them to come over if you're about to kill each other. Well, then why would we want to invite people to the church of the living God when the church is about to kill each other, bite and devour each other? You know what I'm saying? Will you come to our church? What do y'all do there? We fuss and fight all the time. Really? Yeah, all the time. We, we're just about killing each other right now. Really? Yeah, come on. <laughs> Who knows? They may want to come and see the fight. I don't know. Maybe my... Philosophy is wrong. Maybe I start start just telling them, yeah, we fuss about it all the time. Come over and watch the fight. Hallelujah. This generation loves to watch fights like no other generation, I don't think, in history. They love to watch cage fight and boxing, you know, all kinds of stuff, man. So maybe we just ought to tell them, yeah, come see a good fight. You want to you see a good fight, come to our church. You know what I mean? You wouldn't invite your friends over to see you fuss and fight in the family, would you? Okay, that's the point. Say amen. And so we want to please God. How many of you want to please the Lord? I want to please the Lord. And what pleases the Lord is when, is when we come together as one man. There's a unity and purpose is to serve God. That's why I'm here, to serve God. I'm, I'm not here just to come and get fed. That's good. I want you to be fed. But you're here to serve God. You're a, you're a part of this body. Every one of you are in a part, so you need to get in your place and, and serve the Lord in unity of purpose. Hey, praise God. Because we don't want the devil to step in and stop the witness of this church. How many of y'all want to please the Lord? See, so they, they got together and they're going to build that altar to the Lord. Why? To have true worship. Why are they going to do that? Because God likes worship. There's one thing that's renowned about the God that we serve. That's renowned about the God that we serve. He loves to be worshipped. And so they're going to gather together as one man and they're going to worship God as one man. They're going to set in place, you know, the possibility of true worship because God loves worship. Say amen. He loves true worship. It pleases God. For us to have true worship in our lives, to erect altars in our lives. You believe that? Well, let me relate it to you this way. You know how you young people can please mom and dad? Ever thought about it? Y'all want peace in the home? How many young people, your children want peace in your home? Nobody. Okay. That's what I thought. Y'all like a good fight. Well, if you want peace in the home, the way you have peace in the home, the way you please mom and dad is you clean up your room. Pick up your clothes. Hang them up. Put your shoes up. Right? Mow the lawn. 
take the trash out. Right? And, and, and if you do that, you do what you're supposed to do, you get your homework done. You know what? That's going to make mom and dad happy. But if you want war in your house, don't pick up your clothes, don't do, don't mow the yard, don't do your homework, and you'll have war in the house. Okay? But how many of y'all want to please mom and dad so they'll be, it'll be peaceful, it'll be a good place to live? Amen? Well, that's what Israel's doing right here. They're saying, we want to please God. So we're going to build an altar. We're going to have a place of worship. So we can, so we, because this pleases God. And this is something they knew, they knew about God. They knew that God loved worship. They knew that about God. They knew that pleased God. So they're going to get that in place. Say, praise the Lord. Well, hallelujah. And a husband wants to please his wife. How many husbands want to please your wife? Well, one. Maybe we should have a council session after I get through preaching. Okay. You want to please your wife? What do you do? If you want to please your wife, you buy her gifts sometimes, right? Sure. Sure, you buy her gifts. You buy her a lawnmower <laughs> to mow the lawn. Right? Put a big bow on it. Said, here's happy birthday, hon. Got you a lawnmower. Well, that sounds a little self-serving, doesn't it? Or, or maybe you buy her an AR-15. Some of you don't even know what an AR-15 is. That's a military rifle. You buy her an AR-15. She don't even know how to cock the thing, man. But every once in a while, you'll buy something just for her. Hallelujah. And it won't be the lawnmower and it won't be an AR-15. Because that's really kind of self-serving. But every once in a while, you'll buy her some perfume, right? Buy her some flowers or some chocolate or, or take her out to eat somewhere. Just for her, right? Why? Why would you do that? Just to see a smile on her face. See her pleased. See her happy. Hallelujah. Well, that's what the people of God are doing in the passage. They're building an altar. Why? Because they know God likes worship. And they're going to erect an altar to worship God. What about you wives? You wives want to please your husbands, don't you? How many of you wives want to please your husband? Isn't it amazing I have more wives wanting to please their husband than I do husbands that want to please their wives? Well, how can you please your husband? You can listen to him. You can do what he says. Do what he says. You respect him, right? You honor your husband. You respect your husband. You do what he tells you. You be quiet when he tells you to be quiet. Praise the Lord. And, and we're not going to talk about that other thing, okay? We're going to leave that alone. But, you know, the reason why a wife would do that is because she wants to please her husband, right? Praise the Lord. So this is, this is if you want to please God, be a worshiper. Because the Bible says in John chapter 4 that the Lord is looking 
He's seeking such to worship Him. John chapter 4. He's looking for somebody that will worship Him in spirit and in true worship. That's something we know pleases God is if we set a place of worship unto the Lord in our hearts and in our lives. That before anything else, before we finish the houses we're building or whatever, we put God first. We erect an altar in our life. You go through the book of Genesis and you're going to see time after time, Abraham and on and on through the Scripture, the men of God erected altars unto the Lord. They pitched a tent and erected an altar. The tent was saying, I'm just a pilgrim passing through. And the altar said, I need redemption. I need salvation. I'm dependent on God. They would pitch a tent and erect an altar. True men of God have an altar in their life. Say, praise the Lord. And you'll see it in this chapter. They're also going to pitch a tent. Amen. So if you want, how many want to please God? Then be a worshiper. He's seeking such to worship Him. And He wants you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. So, children, now you know how to please mom and dad. Husbands know how to please your wife. And wives know how to please your husband. But ultimately, we want to please God. And so that's what these people are doing. They've uh, returned back to the land. And they're in their land, which I told you last Wednesday, speaks of the favor of God. For a Jew to be wandering without a land, they knew that they were out of the favor of God. For them just to be wandering from one place to another, they didn't belong anywhere. Remember we talked about that last Wednesday? The importance of belonging to a church. The importance of so you need a place to belong. You need a people to belong with. You need a church to belong to. And the Jew that's out there wandering with no land, is, is a testimony he just doesn't belong anywhere. So they're back in their land now. They've returned after 70 years of captivity. And th that tells them that God's favor is on them. That tells them that they've been forgiven of the sins of their past. So they're back in their land. But just as soon as they get in the land, they say, we have got to build an altar to God. We need to erect a place where we can worship God. We've got to get an altar in our lives. And so in a sense, they were putting an altar before finishing their own homes. They put God before they put the building of their houses. Say amen. Praise God. Because they understood the importance of pleasing God, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And so the Bible tells us how they went about it. It was in unity of purpose. They stood up together as one man. And the leadership is in place. You have Jeshua or Joshua, the high priest. You have Zerubbabel, the governor in the kingly line of David. These two leaders represent a king and a priest. And there's no division in them. These two men, Joshua or Joshua, and somebody just threw something. I don't know. I saw it go fly by there. You might check and see what that was about. But we got the high priest Joshua and we got Zerubbabel the governor. And they have different roles. King, priest. But there's no disunity in the headship. There's, there's unity in the leadership. Say praise God. 
Now you can't expect the church to be in unity if the leadership is not in unity. If the, uni the, the, the leadership is scattered everywhere and the leadership's doing its own thing and you know there's, there's no order in the leadership, you can't expect the church to be in unity. But God said the church here in Jerusalem gathered together as one man. And the leadership is seen here in the Scripture in verse 2. The unity in the headship. There's no division in the king-priest ministry here. You understand that? There's no, there's no division here. That's what it's showing you. No, um, in the body of Christ, it's not a schizophrenic situation. You get a church that's schizophrenic. You get a, get a church that's at war with itself. It's divided in itself. Schizophrenic church. Jesus Christ is not schizophrenic. His body should be one. There should be unity in the body of Christ. We shouldn't be schizophrenic, you know? Crazy, insane people. Especially in the leadership. Remember the Psalms talks about the oil flowing down the head of Aaron, top of his head, down to his beard, down the garments, the hem. Speaks of headship. The beard speaks of leadership. And the garments speak of the fellowship. And that's the way God works. When He comes, He hits the leadership first. Headship first, then leadership, and then the body, the fellowship, comes underneath the beard. That's how God works. He don't work from the bottom up. He works from the top down. So the church cannot move any further or any faster than the leadership. If the headship is not right, if the leadership under that headship is not right, then that body suffers greatly. But in this passage, we don't see that. We see Joshua the great high priest and we see Zerubbabel the governor. They are in unity. There's no schizophrenia between them. Are you with me? they got one purpose and one mind. They're doing the work of God. Now notice what I'm saying to you. Now God puts this leadership first in place. Before that altar's built, before the temple's built, that leadership is in place. The church should never bypass, never bypass the headship, the leadership. Never. You start bypassing headship in your life. You start bypassing leadership in your life in a church. You're going to have huge problems in that church. Everybody says, well, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to let the pastor know about it. Uh, we got problems here, but I'm not going to let the pastor know about it. And I appreciate you wanting to take care of things. But if you're not careful, you'll bypass the headship. And you can't do that, not in the work of God. To be as one man in the work of God, unity of purpose, the headship is going to be set in place by the Lord. Now the headship is the pastor. And under the pastor's eldership, say praise God. And servants or deacons, and then the body of Christ. But that leadership has to be in place. You cannot bypass that leadership in your life. You Come on, somebody. And I understand you want to be your own man or you want to be your own woman and you want to be independent and you want to make decisions independent of, of headship. But that can get you in big trouble because God has put leaders or headship in your life to help you. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. You understand that? Praise the Lord. And obviously, I don't want to be involved in every decision, every decision you're making in life. But when it comes to the church, the operation of the church, the function of the church, 
what we're doing as a body, what we're doing as a church, you cannot bypass that leadership. You can't do it. Because if you do, I'll come back and I'll look and say, what in the world are you doing? Well, we started this new program. Like that. Really? Oh, you did? Oh, I'm glad to know about it. How long has it been going? Oh, it's been going for about a month. That Really? Y'all did that? Y'all started? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know y'all was going to do that. You see how confusing that can be? You got people starting their own programs and everything else, and then, then they show it to the pastor and want the pastor to put his approval on. The pastor's not going to put his approval on something like that. You started something up and he wasn't even in. He didn't even know what you were going to do it. You know what I'm saying? So you can't bypass the leadership. It's not because a man has an ego problem or a pride problem. It's the order of God. Say praise the Lord. Now look at what Paul says in the New Testament in the book of Philippians. And I think I'm finally starting to reel you in just a little bit. It takes me about 30 minutes to, to get you off of what was going on the last few days of your week. Okay? Starting to finally reel you in just a little bit. Philippians chapter 1. Go there and see what Paul says in the New Testament. Okay, chapter 1 and uh, verse 27 of Philippians. I'll give you time to get there. Are you there? Okay, Paul says it this way. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind. You're standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Did you get that? He says you're standing fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is the corporate body. This is this coming together as one man for the purpose of the gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. And it says you're striving. What for? For the faith of the gospel. Praise the Lord. That means there's a contending that has to take place, which is different from, you know, tension and division in the body of Christ. But there is a striving or a contending against satanic powers. There is a striving and a contending against false churches, against false doctrine, against ecumenicalism. Okay? The Bible tells us in the last days, perilous times shall come. Are y'all with me? Perilous times are coming. And let's go over there and look at that in Timothy. Second Timothy. In chapter 3 and verse 1. Why do we have to strive for the faith of the gospel? Standing fast in one spirit and one mind. Why is that? This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. In the last days, God said it's going to be extremely stressful. Life is stressful. It's stressful for the body of Christ. So in the last days, perilous times shall come. And we keep reading just a little bit in Timothy. And it tells us in verse 5 that there will be people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof from such turn away. 
there's going to come a time when people just want to be religious. They just want to be churchy. And they're denying the power, the power of God. Amen? Just want to get together and just have a religious meeting. No, no, no. See, that's something we have to resist. We have to strive for the faith of the gospel. That means there's a contending. If there's a striving and there's a contending for the gospel, that means there's warfare. And that warfare is spiritual warfare. So we must always contend or strive against satanic powers, against false doctrine, okay? And against becoming religious or churchy. We have to contend. We have to fight against that because Jesus is telling us perilous times are coming. Stressful days. We're in those days. And people are going to just be religious. We're in those days right now. He, he says in another place, He says, Some shall depart from the faith. There's only one faith. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Any of you walk out of this church and start, start teaching that Jesus isn't God, you are under a seducing spirit. There's only one God and His name is Jesus Christ. And you start, you start saying that Jesus is separate from God, you are under a seducing spirit and a doctrine of a devil. It's the mark of the last days. Seducing spirits. Spirit's going to try to seduce every one of you. I told you Sunday night, we got through preaching the Word of God. I want to tell you something. That, there's a powerful move of God in this service Sunday night. And when we got through, you know, we talked about uh, making choices uh, for, for God, doing, doing it the right way. You know what I'm saying? Living for the Lord. And, uh, and then I saw in, in my spirit in the vision uh, a personification of evil walking by each one of you and offering you an alternative. Giving you an alternative to walk away from God, to leave the church. A seducing spirit walking by each one of you and myself saying, I'll give you an alternative. You don't have to be in this. You don't have to do this. Come on, somebody. But then the Lord showed me a vision and I believe, personally believe, you don't have to believe me, but I believe that I had a vision that the Lord was standing in the midst of His people. So when the enemy was coming by to offer you alternatives to pull you out of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ was happy with you, your commitment to Him, your rededication to Him in your life. And He stood in your midst as a brother because you were willing to go the way of God and not to allow yourself to be seduced with, with, with spirits and doctrines of demons. So Paul talked about it. He said, let your, he's tell, telling us how we live. He said, let our conversation become, is become the gospel of Christ. Are y'all awake tonight? That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. That's what the Lord wants. He wants you to be as one man, unity of purpose, contending for the faith of the gospel. Especially in stressful days and perilous times when people are giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. I want to tell you something. You better wake up because we're in an age of backsliding. We are in an age of apostasy. Listen to your pastor carefully. 
This is what got Israel in trouble in the days of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They started walking away from the true worship of the true and living God. And because they walked away from the true worship of God, that's the reason why they were put into captivity to begin with. So when they come back home, they're restored back to their land. They said, we're going to make absolutely sure that we get the true worship of God set up in our lives. Because that's what caused us to be taken captive originally is because we forsook the true worship of God and started mixing pagan worship in with the worship of the true and living God. They started worshiping Baal and worshiping Jesus God at the same time. And that's what caused them to be taken into captivity. That's what caused their temple to be burned. That's what caused the altar to be torn down was because they did not worship God correctly. So when they come back home, they're making sure that they're one man in purpose. That they're going to establish the worship of God and it's going to be done right. It's going to be right. It's not going to be religious. It's not going to be churchy. It's going to be right. Are you here with me tonight? We've got to get this right, they said. You understand? Because, because we didn't get it right in the past. That's why we were taken captive. Amen, amen. That's why our temple was burned and our city was destroyed because the worship of God was mixed with false worship. Amen. So when they come back home and the leaders call them to worship and call them to build the altar, they're going to make sure they get it right. Are y'all here today? Amen. And we're living in those eight days right now where Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, I don't have time to pull the chart out, Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots, the false church, is spreading its false doctrine all over the world right now. Do you understand? Praise God. And if we're not careful, we'll become captive to her. You know what will protect us and keep us from falling into an ecumenical system and being deceived by religion in our day? Is making sure that we've got the true worship of God set up. And the only way we can know that is by the Word of God, by the Bible. They're erecting this altar according to the Word of God. They are obeying God's Word by erecting this altar because they want to get the worship right. They want to get His... The, the whole thing has to be just exactly according to the way God set it up. Are y'all understanding? If you are, say praise the Lord. Okay, I'm going to repeat myself because I'm thinking it's going over the top of your head. This is why they were taken captive originally. Because they failed in the area of true worship. If they had not failed in the area of true worship, they would have never lost the temple. It would have never been burned with fire. The city would not have been burned. And they would have not have been taken captive if they had done the worship of God according to the Word of God. That's the reason why all of that happened because they walked away from it. And so I'm trying to show you that when, when they return home, they're in their cities. The favor of God is back on them. And they've been forgiven, but they've got to get the worship in place. They've got to make sure that's right. Listen to your pastor tonight. If God is not where He needs to be in your life, you will soon fall all kinds of captivities in your life 
you will become a prisoner. Hallelujah. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? So this is why they come. They come together as one man. The leadership is together as one man. Unity of purpose. There's no schism in the leadership. There's no schism in the body. They've got to make sure that they get this, this thing right, this altar right. Amen. And so the month of Tishrei, the head of years, the beginning of a new year, the Feast of Trumpets, they gather together as one man with the purpose to re-erect the altar of the living God. And the reason why they start there is because the altar speaks of the cross. The altar speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ. It speaks of Christ Himself. Before they ever even build the temple, they build the altar, which speaks of blood. It speaks of the cross. It speaks of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the need for forgiveness of sin. If they don't build this altar and sacrifice bloodshed, their sins cannot be forgiven. And so they build this altar before they build the temple of the Lord because the, the basis of their fellowship as one man, the basis of unity is that we meet in Christ. This altar speaks of Christ. He is our meeting place. He is the one that we, we come to and gather to to worship. Hallelujah. A Jesus that has been lifted up. Lifted up by praise. Lifted up on a cross. He's the one that you and I gather to tonight. And in true worship. And so when they built this altar, the place where uh, sacrifices were made and blood was shed, what they're saying in this is that everything we do is based on having the blood, Calvary, in our life. Every true movement in life must start with the blood of Jesus. Every true movement in your life has to have Jesus Christ as the center of it. Has to have the blood of Jesus to cleanse you of all sin. You can't build the temple until you get that taken care of. Until you get the sin removed out of your life. So they knew they had to build that altar because they had to take care of sin. They had to get right with God. Let me put it to you that way. They had to get right with God. And they knew they had to get right with God, so they built an altar so they could get right with God. And they knew the only way they could get right with God is by the blood. Because God can only be approached through blood. There's no way to approach God except through the blood. And they knew that, so they erected an altar so they could approach a holy and a living God. And they knew they had to get right with God. And when they got right with God, then they could build the temple but not until and until you get right with God every pursuit in your life will be a failure it'll be a waste of your time so they didn't even try to build his temple until they got right with him the basis of our fellowship is Jesus Christ and his shed blood and it gives me the ability tonight to get right with the Lord when they built that altar brother Timothy you know what they were saying it was a confession it was a confession. And that confession was, I'm dependent on Him. I'm dependent on Him. 
that confession as they built that altar. You know what the confession was? We're sinners. We've sinned against God. And I've got to get right with my God today. So I need an altar so I can get right with my God today. Do you understand that? So John says that we've all sinned. If you say you have no sin, you make God a liar. But he says, if you confess your sin, 1 John 1 and 9, if you confess your sin, what is he doing? If you confess your sin, he will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So tonight, listen to me carefully. In order for me to be right with God, I have to have a cross in my life. I have to have a Jesus that shed his blood for me. And when I come into His presence, I openly make confession that I have sinned against God. And I need the Lord to forgive me tonight. I need to get right with God tonight. I need an altar every day. Not, not, not just one time in my life. But Paul said, I die daily. He said, I repent. He said, I repent daily. You have to have an altar daily where you come before God. And it's a public confession, a demonstration. When you build that altar, when you have that altar in your life, you're telling everybody, I'm depending on Him. You're confessing that you're not perfect, but He is. In a time when everybody wants to think that they're perfect, you're not perfect like He is. Nobody's perfect like He is. And so God makes provision. For you to have a, a blood, for you to have a Jesus, for you to have Calvary in your life, you can go up and you can confess, Lord, I'm not perfect. I'm depending on your blood. I need forgiveness tonight, Lord. I've sinned against you. And that's why they put that, that's why they built that altar. It was a, it was a confession to everybody, their dependence on God and their, their need for the blood. Their need to be right with God. Their need of forgiveness. And so that's why they built the altar. Because if you don't have an altar, you don't have forgiveness. Say praise the Lord. So we come together unified. We gather around the Lord Jesus Christ. His person and His work, His finished work of His death, burial, and resurrection. That's who we're coming to tonight. Hallelujah. I'm glad to tell you you didn't come to hear me. Just to hear me preach or just to hear me talk. You came here to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You came here to meet with the altar. You came to meet with the blood that's on the altar. You came for forgiveness of sin. You came to get right with God Almighty. That's why you came tonight. Your life is laden with sin and iniquity. But I'm here with good news to tell you if you will get to Jesus uh, who is the altar and ask him to apply the blood he will forgive your sin and you can leave this church right with the Lord and it was a daily thing it wasn't a one time thing when they built that altar they offered sacrifices every day on that altar it was a daily thing now I come to the house of God today unity of purpose one, one mind I'm standing one spirit I'm contending for the faith of the gospel. But I know I have to have the blood. I need the blood just like you need the blood. I need forgiveness just like you need, to need forgiveness. I'm depending on God just like you depend on God. I confess it. 
There's times I stand up here and I'm as transparent as glass before you. And I talk about my weaknesses and I talk about my failures and I don't get up here as one being better than you. And you know that. And every time I do that, some of you might not like it. Some of you, you might want a perfect man to be your pastor. But the only thing I know to tell you is I needed Jesus too. And I need a blo- the blood of Jesus to forgive me too. And it's not that I want to sin. It's not that I'm giving in to sin. But if we sin, if I confess it, He'll forgive me. And He'll cleanse me from all unrighteousness. So if I stand before you transparent and I talk about failures or weaknesses or, or even sin that might be in my life, you know what I'm doing? I'm doing what they did. I'm erecting an altar. I'm making a public confession that I'm dependent on God and I'm dependent on His blood and I'm not perfect. He is. Until I get a glorified body, daily, daily, I die daily. Daily, I have to repent. Daily, I have to confess. I have not arrived yet. I've got to keep that altar in place. I've got to keep a relationship with Jesus Christ. I have to seek the blood. You know, you know what, what caused them to do this? You know what caused them to build this altar? Because they were being terrorized by the enemy. The Scripture says it. Look at it with me, please. Verse 3 tells you why they did it. They set the altar upon His bases for fear was upon them because of the people of, of those countries and they offered burnt offerings therefore unto the Lord even burnt offerings morning and evening. They were being terrorized by the people of other countries around them. The enemy was terrorizing them. So they, boy, when the enemy started coming in and terrorizing them, they said, we better get the altar back in place. We better get true worship back in place. We better get something in our life that gets us right with God because we're being terrorized right now. We're being tormented by the enemy. The enemy is coming against us. And until I get that altar in place, there will be the terrorizing and the torments of the enemy. Say amen. And God will allow that. Okay, everybody listen to me for just a minute. No one? Okay. In your life, you know when you're a time when you are being terrorized. You know when you are living a life of torment. And when that happens to you and I, that tells us something. It tells us that we're not right with God. The Bible says fear hath torment, but perfect love casts out all fear. If you live a terror, hallelujah to the Lamb. I feel the Holy Ghost tonight. The devil is a terror. He's, he's a terrorizer. That's what he's all about is terror. Hallelujah. And that tomorrow night, that's what this whole thing tomorrow night's about. It's about terror. It's about fear. It's about death. It's about celebrating that. You don't celebrate. Listen, if you've got demons attacking your mind, you're being terrorized and tormented every day of your life, you don't celebrate that. And God allows, listen church, He allows the enemy to come and start terrorizing you. 
and me. Torment me. You know why he does that? So I'll recognize I'm not where I need to be. I'm not right with God. I need to make sure I got that altar in place. I need to make sure I've got my sins. I've confessed my sins. I'm depending on his blood tonight. Hallelujah. I got to get the blood between me and the devil. I got to get the blood between me and the devil. They're, they're erecting this altar. Amen. Amen. And they put that, they put blood on that altar and that blood stood between them and the enemy, their enemies. Hallelujah. They knew if they got right with God, got the sin question taken care of, the blood supplied, true worship is in place, they knew that brought protection to them. Your home tonight's being terrorized and tormented on every side. The enemy's coming in here and coming in there and coming in here and coming in there. And you're saying, what's going on? You need to erect the altar. You need to get the blood in place. You need to confess. You need to repent. You need to get right with God. And when you do, He will protect you. That's what He's saying. I'll protect a true worshiper. I'll protect somebody that's got the blood applied to their life. I'll protect somebody that's got an altar in their life. It brings the protection of God in your life. God allowed that, that terrorizing of the, of the enemy, that tormenting of the enemy to bring them to a place where they erected that altar. Hallelujah to the Lamb. Somebody say praise the Lord. What the blood of Jesus can do in your life. I've seen so many people in this church all, I'm talking about messed up big time in so many ways. Get baptized in Jesus' name. Get filled with the Holy Ghost. Erect an altar in their life where they get right with God. Apply the blood. Their forgiveness of sin. God heals their mind. God heals their spirit. God heals their body. That's the power of the gospel. I'm looking at miracles in this church. So God allowed that terrorizing and that tormenting to take place so these people would build an altar in their life. You want protection in your life? Be a true worshiper. You want protection in your life against the enemy? Erect the altars of God. God is good. He'll forgive you. Jesus said, if I and if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men into myself. He's talking about a cross. He's also talking about the resurrection of the dead. I meet with Him tonight. He's my altar. I depend on the blood tonight. And so do you. Now, does this mean anything to the church anymore? Does the preaching of the cross mean anything else? Mean anything to the church anymore? The preaching of the blood of Jesus. The power that's in the blood. And what it does for us. It protects us. I don't want to be tormented. I don't want to be terrorized. So I need to get right with my God tonight. You need to get right with your God tonight. But there's a place. And that place is Jesus. They built that altar at the right place. And they built it at the right time. There was order in everything they did. The Bible said they re-erected this altar according to the law of Moses. They returned back to the land, but they also returned back to the Word of God. 
And they found out how to build that altar by the Word of God. And they wanted to make sure that when they built it, they built it exactly according to the pattern, according to code. Because they had already been taken captive in the past. Because of failure in worship. So you go get the law of Moses. And the leadership was in place. And they read the law of Moses. They found out exactly where the altar should be. It should be right over adjacent to the temple. The place, the time. The time when the sacrifices should be offered. Morning, twice a day. The burnt offering. Morning and evening. Morning and evening. Every day. Twice a day. Morning and evening. They pitched the, tent, the altar at the right place and they offered sacrifices at the right time. And it was all according to the Word of God. No guesswork. There was no guesswork in, in, in this return to true worship. It had the return to the Word of God. There's no guesswork when it comes to the church of the living God. You start guessing at it. Well, we're going to try to do it like this. We're going to try to do it like that. Yeah, No, no, you're in big trouble. There's no guesswork in the things of God. It's in the Bible. It's in the Word. And you have to build it according to the Word. So they got the law of God. They built that altar in the right place. And they started offering sacrifices at the right time. As prescribed by the Word of the living God. Say amen. 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 Say praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Burn offerings are offered, in case you don't know it, they're offered twice a day, once in the morning, and once in the evening. The Bible says they offered those unto the Lord. Praise God. In, in, in fact, it, verse 3 tells you that. Even burnt offerings, morning and evening. Morning and evening. The right place the altar is built and the right time. And it's all according to the Word. Say praise the Lord. To fail in this worship of the living God, my friend, whether you be young or old, is to become a captive to the enemy. The failure of this in your life is to be terrorized by the people around you. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And so they made sure they got it built, re-erected, and they did it according to the word of the Lord and the sacrifices that were offered. Do you see that today? In verse 4, it says they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles. Now remember the Feast of Tabernacles? See, they re-erected this altar on the first day. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles is in the same month. You have the Feast of Trumpets and then you have uh, the Day of Atonement. And then after that, you have the Feast of Tabernacles. And the Bible says that they kept the Feast of Tabernacles. What's happening here? What's happening here? Well, I told you I was going to teach you on unity and order. What we have here is the, the order of God, the true order of God, true worship being established. We've got an altar built where blood is shed. Forgiveness of sins can be found. We have the order of God is set up in the place the altar's built. By the word and the timing, the offerings are made. The order of God is in place. And now the order of worship is furthered in the fact that they observe the Feast of Tabernacles. What is the Feast of Tabernacles all about? 
When did they do that? When did they start building? When did they pitch tents? When they walked out of Egypt. They shed the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt and walked out by the blood of the lamb. You had the blood. And on their way to the promises of God, they pitched these little tents or these little booths. You could see them in the wilderness. Thousands of these little tents. And that huge tabernacle right in the middle of them. Are you with me tonight? And they would pitch those tents. They would, and then they would move and they'd walk through the wilderness and they would pitch the tent. And, and they lived in those tents as they journeyed on their way to the promises of God. And what they were saying is, see, they were the Feast of Tabernacles that they're keeping here is reminding them of where God found them. It's reminding them of the Exodus when God brought them out of Egypt. It's reminding them that they are a people who are pilgrims passing through to the promises of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's why I said they built an altar pitched a tent always throughout the Old Testament. But the Feast of Tabernacles connected with people that were always on the move. They were the people of God that were always on the move toward the promises of God. Do you understand that? And so for us as Christians, we need to apply the same wisdom. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. That old song, my home is laid up somewhere. Beyond the blue. If you're going to walk in the wisdom of God, you need to keep the Feast of Tabernacles spiritually in your, in your life. Understand, you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You've had a personal exodus in your life out of an old world. The devil tried to destroy you there, but you've been brought out by the blood. And now you're on your journey. Hallelujah to the promises of God. And you're just a pilgrim passing through. This world's not my home. I'm just passing through. That's why I have to keep that always before me if I'm going to walk in the wisdom of God. This is not my abiding home. It's only a temporary place. It's only a temporary place for you and a temporary place for me. Someday it's all going to burn up. Everything's going to burn up. That you can see with your eyes. Everything that you can see with your eyes is temporary. And that's all going to burn up. But that eternal that you cannot see is not going to be burned up. So if you're going to walk in the wisdom of God, you've got to keep the fist of the tabernacle spiritually. Remember the Passover land. And remember you're just a stranger and a pilgrim. Passing through this old world. This is not our home. I'm glad, brother. Sometimes you'll start having troubles in your life. You know why? The Lord allows it because He knows you're starting to get too comfortable in this old world. He knows your affections are starting to be focused on this old world. So He'll start sending trouble to you. See? They're terrorized, so they're going to build an altar, approach God through the blood, and have a feast that tells them, don't get too focused on living in this world. Amen. Come on, somebody. Amen. That's a word I hear the Holy Ghost tonight. There's a stressing for us. We need to hear it tonight. Because sometimes we get too comfortable in this whole world. We think we're going to be here forever, but we're not. We're pilgrims. Peter talked about it in his epistles. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We need to always keep that before us. Hallelujah, Hallelujah. to the Lamb. Kept the Feast of Tabernacles and notice... 
all the feasts are always connected with the blood, with the altar. Because this people knew if you're going to have true worship of God, based on the Word of God, everything has to be set in order. The order of God. And there had to be blood before you could ever observe the feast of tabernacles. Because you can't even get in the presence of God without the blood. So they got the blood in place. And now the Bible says they're enjoying the Feast of Tabernacles. And I've already told you what that means. But it's also a time of great celebration and great joy. It's one of the greatest festivals and celebrations in Israel's in their, on their calendar. There's nothing like it. Okay? Say praise the Lord. You know what it speaks of? It speaks of the kingdom age that we're headed to. Feast of Tabernacles, the seventh feast speaks of the seventh day. It speaks of the millennial kingdom that we're headed to. Praise the Lord. And so I'm just passing through. Hallelujah. The rapture is going to take place soon. I'm going to be caught out of this world. And God's going to take me into His kingdom, which the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of. This is a picture of the rapture of the church and the setting up of the kingdom in this feast. Somebody say, Praise the Lord. What if that were to happen tonight? Okay, I'm not going to get into theology tonight, but what if that were to happen tonight? The rapture of the church, you leave this earth. That is a, listen, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles is a picture of. Leaving this earth, making your journey to the promises of God and the kingdom of God being set up. Would you be ready tonight if the rapture were to take place? Would you leave? Are, are you? And am I? Am I tonight? Too rooted in this world. My roots are so deep in this world that if the rapture were to take place for God to take me, He'd have to pull my roots out. And to pull my roots out, He'd have to take the whole planet Earth with me because I'm so rooted in this world. He'd have to take, have to take me and the world with me to get me out of here because I'm so rooted in this thing. No, that's what this, this is teaching you. Don't be rooted in this world. Be ready for the rapture of the church, man. You're going to be headed to the kingdom of the living God someday. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. When you serve God, you always have to be ready to be on the move. If you're really serving God, is the people of God? The people of God are always moving. That's a sign of true worship. People, the people of God are always going to be moving. If you're not moving with God, you are not a part of this corporate man. But people who are part of this corporate man, who have the altars of God in their life, they are people who move with God. They are led by the Spirit. And they're led by the Word of God in the order of their worship. Say praise the Lord. So they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. As it is written, say as it is written, and offer the daily burnt offerings by number according to the custom as the duty of every day required. They went to the Word of God and they found out exactly how many they offered. Everything was exactly in the perfect order of God. You've got the headship. You've got the people as one man, unity. Now you've got the order of worship being set in place with an altar, with sacrifices, the feast are in place. Are y'all with me? And it's all based on the Word of God. Okay? Say praise the Lord. 
and afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of the set feast of the Lord. They were consecrated. You see these offerings? The blood's connected to the feast. And everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Do you see that? They did all of this before they even laid the foundation of the temple. We worship God in spirit and in truth. Do you see that? It's not about big buildings. You can have big buildings but not have the true worship of God. Say praise the Lord. It's about getting the true worship of God based on the Word of God down. And then you can build a house. The third thing I told you I was going to talk to you about in this section here is faith. They had unity. They had the order, true order of worship based on the Word of God. And they had faith. The Bible tells us, look at it, the faith that they had. The foundation of the temple had not even been laid yet. They gave money also unto the masons and to the carpenters and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon and to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the Sea of Joppa according to the grant they had of Cyrus, king of Persia. They had faith. Cyrus had given a grant. Amen. Yeah. Isaiah 45, you can read it in, in, in your leisure or your leisure, whatever you want to call it. You can read about it. Cyrus gave them a decree. They could build the temple. He helped them even. Praise the Lord. With substance. So the order of God could be established in Jerusalem. We've already talked about that. But what they did in the giving of offerings and the preparation for the building of the temple was based on their faith. They believed what God said. That he was going to use Cyrus to give that decree to allow them to go home, 536 B.C., 538, 537 B.C. They went back in 536 B.C. after a short period, a short delay. It took them about four months to get there, traveling through the desert. You know, you understand? But they had a promise from God, prophetic promise from God, that God would raise up a man by the name of Cyrus, and that promise was given 170 years or so before the man was ever born. Called him by name. Read Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45. And they believed that promise. Amen. How did they believe it? By faith. Amen. They exercised their faith that God, God, God would provide for this house. And they bring their offerings by faith based on a promise, a decree, the decree of Cyrus. It was all by faith. See, it wasn't just external things that was going on. That's what I want you to hear. It wasn't just external things that they were doing. They had internal reality. They weren't just going through the motions. They weren't just erecting altars and, and going through the motion and, and, and offering sacrifices and going through the motion. And, and they weren't just keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, just going through religious motion and ceremony. They had faith. They believed what they were doing. They believed in the promises of God and that God provided for them to build this house. And they were responding not just to an external operation, but an internal reality. See, faith is something inside of you. Faith is something inside of me. They had it. 
They had the internal, not just the external. They had faith. And they believed God. And in that believing of God, the provision of God was given for the building of this temple. Are you with me? Say, if you are, say, praise the Lord. All based on a promise of God. Now they're going to start building the temple. And the Bible tells us the second year of their coming unto the house of God. The second month. So now they built that altar in, in the uh, fall of uh, 536 B.C. September, they built that altar. September, October, 536 B.C. In the second year, the second month, which brings you to 535 B.C., in the spring, in the spring, they start building the temple of the Lord. And they lay the foundation for the house of God. The Bible tells us 535, the second year of their coming to the house of God. How in the world? Brother Mark, I read that and I'm going, how can they come to the house of God when they haven't even built the house of God? But it says they came to the house of God in Jerusalem. You know what that's talking about is the one that was burned. They built the altar in the right place. They did the offerings at the right time, all based on the Word of God. And they went to that place where that temple once stood that had been burned to the ground. To let you know that what they're about to do in the building of this new temple is connected to the old. That it wasn't some kind of brand new thing they were coming up with on their own. It was rooted in the past. So they went to the, to the house, to the temple, the house of God there that was burned. They saw it burn. And they're going to rebuild that temple. Rebuild that temple. Connecting the new one with the old. Everything's got to be in the right place. It's got to be in the threshing floor of Ornan. David bought, bought that threshing floor of Ornan that he might build that temple right there on Mount Moriah where Abraham offered up Isaac where Jesus Christ in the future would be offered upon Calvary's tree right there in that place. It had to be right there. They walked up to the threshing floor of Ornan and they saw that temple had been burned to the ground. And in that same place, Mount Moriah, where Abraham offered Isaac, Amen, Jesus Christ in the future would be offered. That's where they erected the new temple. Connected with the old one. Say praise the Lord. They didn't come up with this on their own. It was connected to the old ways of God, the old worship of God. Say praise God tonight. Hallelujah. And just as before, when you have the altar being built, you still got the same leadership. You got Yeshua or Jesus, Joshua, the high priest, and you have Zerubbabel, the king or the governor, if you will, in the line of David, the kingly line of David. And there they are. Say praise the Lord. The leadership is in place. Headship's in place. Look at verse 8. They came into the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, 
began Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadak, Jezadak, and the remnant of their brethren. Ah, who else do they have with them? Ah, now the priests. The priests are there. Why do you have the priests there? You've got the headship in, in uh, Zerubbabel and, and the great high priest Joshua. Why do you have other priests there? There's over 4,000 of them. Remember we talked about it last week? Priests are there because they are the mediators. They are the go-between between God and man. Priests represent men to God. So you got the priests there. you got the mediators there. The go-betweens there. Hallelujah. Those that, that uh, represent uh, the people to God. Bringing Amen. the people of God into the presence of God. Amen. If you're going to build a temple, you've got to have the mediators in place. Say hallelujah to them. And then you got the Levites. The Bible tells us. Look at it. And the Levites are there. Wow. And all they that were come out of captivity in Jerusalem and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. Well, you've got the priests there, the mediators of the covenant, the go-betweens between a God and man. Amen. You couldn't get to God without a priest. You couldn't get to God without the blood. You couldn't get to God without a priest. They represent the ultimate, ultimate mediator, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You can't get to God without a mediator. Those priests know that temple. They know the work of that temple. They know how they know how it's supposed to be supposed to be set up. And they've got their assistants, the assistants to the priests, the Levites, with them in this work because the Levites have the records of the temple. They know exactly where every stone has to be put. They know exactly how that thing's supposed to be, be built, where it's supposed to be built, how it's supposed to be built. These Levites are the inspectors of the house of God. They're not going to get in a hurry. They're not going to compromise worship. They're not going to compromise anything. They're going to make sure everything is done according to the Word of God. And you've got the right headship and leadership in place for that to happen. Make sure everything's done according to code. Say according to code. It has to be exactly right. And these Levites... In the second chapter, I believe it's verse 40, tells us there's only 74 of them that came back. Only 74. 74 assistant ministers. Really small amount of Levites that came back. Over 4,000 priests with 74 Levites to assist them. That shows you how few assistants there really are. I appreciate you, Brother How few assistants there are to the men of God in ministry. Only 74 were willing to return from Babylon. And so God made a special provision here. He said, I'll let Levites that are 20 years old do this work. Normally, you had to be 30 years of age, the age of maturity. Do you understand that in the priesthood, you started being a priest at age 30 and you had to retire at 50. Hey, I'm 50. <laughs> and I started when I was about 30. Started this church when I was about 30. Hmm, praise the Lord. Pray pray for me. Hallelujah. Pray for me. Ooh, thank you, Jesus. Maybe I'm closer than I thought. 
But it's unusual because normally they had to be 30 years of age. But because there's so few Levites, assistant ministers here, he said, we'll, we'll make a special provision here. It's an emergency time. I'll let them do it if they're 20. God makes special provision in emergency times. 20 years of age, the Levites, they got the records. They are the inspectors of the house. We're not going to get in a hurry. We're not going to build this fast. We're going to take our time. We're going to make sure that everything's right. Say praise the Lord. It's going to be exactly according to the Bible. And it's going to be, the worship's going to be based on the covenant. And it's for sure not going to be based on the heart. And I'm going to show it to you in the passage. Based on the Bible and the covenant and not on the heart. Everybody's in place. Say praise the Lord. That, see, that's what, you know, me and my wife talked about this. That's what some people, they don't like about the book of Ezra because it talks about so much order. And a lot of people don't want order in their life. They're willing to live with confusion and chaos and compromise. This book teaches you God is a God of order and He works by the Bible. He works by His Word. He doesn't bypass His Word. He doesn't get in a hurry. Everything has to be according to code. And you've got inspectors, building inspectors, Brother Mark, that make sure, they're the Levites, make sure that everything's done just right. How many want order in your life? You get, you get, you're tired of the chaos and the confusion and, and the compromise. Come on! You can say it, but do you really want it? And it has to be established by the Word of the living God. The decision that had to be made had to be made by the Word of God. This church has to be established that same way. I have to leave this church according to the Word of God, not based on my opinion. You can have your opinion all you want. You can like this or not like that, but what does God say about it? God makes provision whether you like it or not. He didn't ask your opinion what you thought. It's based on the Word of God. Now, I... I gotta calm down because my zeal start coming out on me. You you might think I'm mad at you. I'm not mad at you. But there's a zeal, you know how I mean. I said, well, Pastor, normally we'd be going home by now, but you're not in that kind of church. You don't if you want to go to church, they have thirty minute sermons, be my guest. I told you, you could go. I'm gonna preach as long as I feel led of God to preach. If I keep you till twelve o'clock. And you don't like it, guess what? I don't really care. If you like it or not. What a what an attitude for a pastor to have, huh? You just don't care what you think. Verse nine says, Then stood. Say then stood. Who? Yeshua. Jeshua, or Jesus, he's a type of Jesus, with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. Isn't that awesome? That's beautiful, isn't it? Did everything according to the Word of God. Got the leadership that knows how it's supposed to be built. 
and make sure that it's built just like that. No compromises, no cutting any corners here. It's going to be done like that. Hallelujah. I love the book of Ezra. I told you it's rich. And then we move from there. The Bible says in verse 10, I want you to see this. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple, what's the foundation of the temple, spiritually speaking? The Bible tells you that Jesus Christ is the foundation of the temple. Right? He's the foundation. He's the chief cornerstone. We're built upon the, upon what? The doctrine. We're built upon the apostles. The church is built upon the apostles. Ephesians 2.20. Upon the, uh, we're built upon the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. You want to have true foundation, you have to have the doctrine of the apostles, the doctrine of Jesus, Jesus Christ is the chief stone in that foundation. It's a type. The temple is a type. Are you here? What's it a type of? It's, it's the habitation of God through the Spirit. It's where God dwelt. He had left Solomon's temple, but this temple is going to be built. It's going to be the habitation of God through the Spirit. That's what it represents. The habit where God dwells. It's where His name was placed. His name was put there. If you wanted to understand the attributes of God, of justice and mercy, you would go to that temple. And the furniture that was in that temple speaks of salvation. It speaks of Jesus Christ. It's a type of your salvation. The light that was in that temple. Praise the Lord. The bread, the table that was in that temple. All speak of your salvation. Speaks of Jesus. So we got to make sure we get it right. Because it's a type. They laid that foundation. It also speaks of foundation, foundational doctrines in the church. Are you here tonight? Amen. Acts 2.42 talks about it. They continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Breaking of bread. Hallelujah. Amen. Prayers. Say praise the Lord. Praise and the Lord. fellowship. Amen. You want to know what it's supposed to do in the church? Read Acts 2.42. And find out before you get to that, baptism in Jesus' name and the infilling of the Holy Ghost and repentance is a part of the foundational truths. And the book of Acts is the apostles going and laying foundation, starting new works, starting new churches, telling them how to get in the kingdom of God and then telling them how to serve God after they get in the kingdom of God. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts is foundational. Apostles lay foundation. You want to know how a church is supposed to operate? Read Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Then go to 42. It tells you how they... Worship God in spirit and truth even in our time. If you love the Lord, say praise the Lord. And they laid that foundation. That's what, that's what apostles do. They lay, they lay foundation. They start new works. Make sure they set order in the house. Praise the Lord. You don't have to be an apostle to preach the order of God. But an apostle's primary focus is always going to be order, 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 order. Government, government, government. Spirit and government. Spirit and order. That is the way you can identify an apostle. They start new works. They lay foundation. And it's all about setting order in that house. Say praise the Lord. The Bible tells us, here we go from there. They laid the foundation of the Lord. And they set the priest in their apparel. Look at this. These priests, these are Levitical priests. They're in their clothing, their apparel. Mm, say praise God. praise God. Connected to that mosaic economy. He says, 
They're in their apparel and what? With trumpets. Say trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of King David. This whole worship service here that's about to take place is based on the directives of David. It's after the tabernacle of David. In Acts 15, it tells us that the worship of the church is patterned after the tabernacle of David. You want to know how a church is supposed to worship God? The church, Acts 15, is to worship God after the pattern of the tabernacle of David. And so when they lay the foundation of this temple, it's the worship that's going to take place is by the directives of David. And that's for us today in the church. Acts 15. What did they do? They got trumpets. They got crashing cymbals. They got loud horns. See, don't be like, I don't like it's too loud there. You You don't know what you're talking about. The worship that is set in the house of God is based on the directive of David. When David set up the worship, they worshiped 24, not just three or four hours. They worshiped 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And when they walked before the ark of God in the tabernacle of David, they danced like David danced. They clasped cymbals, blew horns, played string instruments, sang unto the Lord. It was loud. It was loud. Loud horns. Loud clashing of of cymbals. (laughs) You don't like it? God requires it. It was based on the directives of David. It was based on the Word of God. God told them how to worship. God told them how to sing. God told them to get instruments. Get some loud instruments and play loudly. Play skillfully. Amen. It was according to the directives of David. It's beautiful, isn't it? So the worship See, the laying of the foundation of the temple and the priest and everybody involved, that's connected to the Bible. The Word of God. The Bible. But this is connected to covenant. And that covenant is the covenant that God made with David. And He said, David, when you worship me, get some loud instruments. Why, Lord? Because I require it. Hallelujah. Say praise the Lord. You want to know if you're going to the right church? Well, I'm preaching. I'm showing you a pattern right here. You go to the right church, they're going to be loud church. They're going to be running. They're going to be shouting. They're going to be clashing cymbals and blowing horns, real loud horns. Like him. See, he's a loud horn. Or maybe he's a clashing cymbal. At least you're not a clinking cymbal. Huh? Is that what that is? Oh, yeah, the little ding, ding. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. All the Psalms. If you had a Masoretic text, you could take the Masoretic text, and I can't read Hebrew, Brother Mark. You take the Masoretic text with the Hebrew, and they got all kinds of marks and indentations and everything all over that Psalm that we don't see in our New Testament. 
I mean, it's just covered with all kinds of marks. What was that? Because every psalm that they sang, they sang it a certain way. And certain instruments were played with certain psalms. And when they would sing that song and they would play that instrument with that song, there was certain crescendos and so on and so forth as to how to sing those songs. We don't know how to sing the songs today. Brother Heath and them get a few songs and, and they put music to it and that's perfectly fine. That's a good thing. They're singing the songs of David. But in that day, they played them with certain instruments and they played them a certain way. I mean, the Psalms are covered with the marks in the Masoretic text. It's according to the directives of David. See, David was a worshiper. He knew what pleased God was worship. And David danced before the Lord. He was king and he danced before the Lord, the ark of God. And his, his wife got all mad. Look how you're acting, David, out there dancing, taking your ephod out and, and dancing before the Lord. Who do you think you are? Act, you, you act like a fool doing that. David said, you haven't seen anything yet. Hallelujah. I'll yet worship my God. Hallelujah. David was a worshiper. No, no wonder. And he's the one that set the 24 courses of the priesthood up to worship God 24 days and uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week with instruments of praise, loud instruments. Get them. It's essential worship. It's worship that God said that God requires. You talk, David was amazing. Let's keep. I think you're getting tired, so I'm going to go on. And what did they do? They sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because He is good for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Amen. They're singing a psalm right there. Psalm 136 and verse 1. They go right to the Bible. They're singing the Bible. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, praise the Lord. I love it. How many of y'all want me to keep preaching? Y'all want me to keep preaching? I want you to lift your hands high if you want me to keep preaching. Oh, that's what I thought. Thank you. Yeah, amen. I'm going to accommodate your wishes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They shouted. The Bible says they shouted. There's shout in the house of God. Singing his psalms, talking about his mercy and his goodness. Amen. Amen. And no wonder it says, Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongues with singing. They said, We were as them that dreamed. We can't believe that we're back home and we're establishing the worship of the living God. And it's been 70 years since the destruction of the temple burned to the ground. And it's because we failed in our worship of God before that all of this happened. But we're going to make sure we get it back right. Isn't that awesome? It's beautiful, isn't it? They're shouting here with a great shout. That's what I love about this church. You know, sometimes God's Spirit starts moving in you and this you shout so loud, it is, it's such a beautiful thing to hear it. They shouted with a great shout. 
when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Amen. Sometimes I'm not going to turn there. First Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said he was a master builder. Master builder. Came to build. You don't believe Paul was a master builder? Look at how many New Testament books he wrote. Establishing order in the church. and Master builder. He said, I was a master builder. And so he tells everybody else, he says, you come along and you want to build? He said, be careful how you build. God used, Paul says, God used me as a master builder. He said, you better be real careful when you're building the house of God. You make sure you got everything just like it's supposed to be. Be careful how you build. He's saying that to me tonight. Paul's saying that to me. He's saying that to you. You better be careful how you build the house of God. Paul was a master builder. He knew how to build a church. A lot of shouting, a lot of praising, a lot of singing. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, they had, they had uh, seen the temple of Solomon and then they were taken captive. And it's been about, you know, it's been a while since the former was completely destroyed. They saw that temple before and they made it back to the land, some of the old old saints. And the Bible says when they saw that foundation of that temple built, there wasn't anything like Solomon's temple. And, and so the Bible says their response, these ancient men, that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes wept with a loud voice and many shouted aloud for joy. You got some crying, you got somebody shouting for joy. The young men are shouting for joy and the old men are crying. The old men are crying because they remember the, remember the former glory and the old men are crying because they see the loss laying all around them. They see a burnt house because of sin. They see a burnt house because of a failure in worship. And they see this foundation. It's not what it was. And they just sit there and they start crying. And the question is asked, were they wrong in crying? I think, as in the text, it shows us that you have this group crying and this group shouting for joy. The young people are shouting for joy because they see progress being made. They see the raising up of a testimony of the grace of God out of failure. They see as God raises that up out of failure. They start getting excited. Look what the Lord's doing. There's progress being made. The old men, though, they look at the loss. They look at this one is not like Solomon's was. And they start crying. Let me say this to you before I, I, I tell you what really happens. But I really believe there's a place for both of them. The Bible said the old men cried, the young men shouted for joy when the foundation was laid. And the Bible says that they, were, they just, both of them came together as one. 
the crying and the shouting came together as one voice. That teaches me that there's room for both in the church. The crying over the loss because of sin. The crying over failure because of sin. The loss of former glory because of sin. There's room for that in the church. There's also room for the shouting as you see God, the progress of God raising up a testimony, raising it up out of failure. There's room for both. We need the weeping over failure and we need the shouting over the grace of God being testified of as it brings something out of failure and out of fire. These people have been through the fire. They've been tested. They've been purified. They're making sure they've got everything right where it should be. But there's still remnants of their past that causes them to weep. There's room for both of that in the church. The way the prophets handled it, and we'll see in, the, in, in Ezra chapter 4 that after they, they lay the foundation, then the, then the work is stopped for 15 years. In the fourth chapter. So all they do here is lay a foundation. They stop for 15 years and prophet Haggai and the prophet Zechariah after 15 years with just the foundation stand up and begin to preach and encourage the people to finish to complete the temple. 15 years. After this, the prophets start preaching. But 15 years after they lay that foundation and 15 years after they weep and they shout. When the temple is finally completed, the old men seem to weep again. Because Zechariah and Haggai address it. If you will, in closing, let's go to Zechariah chapter 4. Or, yeah, Zechariah chapter 4. <clears throat> Remember, this is the weeping here in the, fourth, the third chapter is 15 years before these prophets even start preaching. You'll see that next week. We'll pick up from there next week. Okay, Zechariah in chapter 4. In verse 10. Zechariah, the way he handles the weeping of the old men is found. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. But those seven they, they are the eyes of the Lord which run to and fro through the whole earth. Through Zechariah, God says to those who are discouraged, don't despise the day of small things. God's going to finish it. He's going to finish what He started. God is in the midst of you. He's with you. It's going to be finished. Don't despise the day of small things. He's encouraging the discouraged. I'll say it to you this way. When the church is small, don't be discouraged. Don't be despised in the day of small things. Maybe you've been a part of something that was bigger in the past. Maybe it becomes small. Don't get discouraged. God is still in the midst. God is still doing the work. Praise the Lord. Rejoice in what God do, is doing in that present hour. 
Rejoice in what God is doing in that present hour. Though it be small or it be big, be big. Rejoice in God. Don't despise the day of small things. Man, you get discouraged. You don't see much growth. Okay, let's go to Haggai and I close. This is how those prophets handled them. Haggai, right before Zechariah, started preaching right before Zechariah, I believe. And then the third chapter. No. Yeah, Haggai, Zechariah. Uh, two, Haggai 2. In the seventh month, in the one and twenty-first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, See, Zechariah and Haggai encouraging the people at the same time to build. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jozadek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remained among you. Fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while. And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Haggai says to the people, they're discouraged about the small smallness of, of this temple of Zerubbabel in comparison to the days of Solomon. Zerubbabel. You, Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua, y'all be encouraged. That this temple you're building right now, which will be refurbished by Herod in the future, will be the one that Jesus Christ Himself walks into. This temple will have the King of Kings walk in it when He's personified. And the temple that He will build thereafter will be a people. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost with temple you are? The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. It's going to be greater than Solomon's house because Jesus is going to walk in. It, the temple he's going to build is going to be greater than that one because it's going to be individuals just like you and I. The spiritual temple of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's living on the inside of you right now at the habitation of God through the Spirit and you're called by His name. You fulfill the type of that temple which speaks of the habitation of God in the name of God. But don't be discouraged because even beyond that, the temple that God will build, Jesus will build in the kingdom age is much larger than even this one. 
Haggai the prophet. He's reaching, boy. He's reaching. He's laying that temple out. He's going all the way to the coming of Jesus to walk in that temple, the temple of the Lord, which is the church. He goes right up into the kingdom age, man. He talks about that future glorious temple. Can't even compare Solomon's temple with that future one. So be encouraged, you old men that weep and cry as you have the hope of the future. <clears throat> so that's how the prophets handled it. So I believe that they wept twice. They wept when the foundation was laid and they wept when the temple was completed. Because the either that or the prophets were making reference to that first time when they wept the first time. In closing, I will say this. It is important for older saints of God not to discourage new saints. Because they come into church and they've never seen, they've never seen the form of glory of the church. And they come in and, and they don't understand pastor talking about tension and division and fussing and fighting. They, they don't even know what pastor's talking about. They, they don't even see that. You know? And if pastor's not careful, he'll discourage the new saints. Amen. But we won't, it's over tonight, right, isn't it? All that division and disunity and having your own way and doing your own thing and being scattered like sheep without a shepherd. Amen. That's over with tonight, isn't it? So praise the Lord. All right, we're done with that. But it's real important that you old saints, some of you have been in the church for two years, you're old saints. <laughs> that you don't discourage the new ones. You sit around, it's so bad, so bad. And the new saints are going, what are you talking about? This is awesome. Woo! Hallelujah, man. I feel God. Let's have revival, you know. I'm ready to win so. You're talking, you're talking about it being so bad? Yeah, you got to be careful. The old saints say, Problem with old saints, they get in the church. They first get in the church, they're so excited, they're in love with the Lord, they're in love with Jesus. Until an old saint gets a hold of them. And that old saint sits down and. And sometimes the old saint doesn't even have to say anything. Just the look on their face makes the, the young saint want to puke. How long you been in the church? How long the new saint says, How long you been in the church? I've been in the church about forty years. <laughs> really? Tell me about it. Yeah, you should have saw that meeting we had twenty years ago. <laughs> well, wasn't this an awesome service today? Yeah, but wasn't like that one twenty years ago. <laughs> and the longer that old saint lives, the the greater that meeting in the past becomes. <laughs> and you talk to another saint that was alive at the same time and he says, oh, he, they're just getting old. That, that meeting wasn't that great, but it's great to him. The older he gets, the bigger it is. <laughs> we got to be careful. Old saints, man, get a hold of new saints and discourage them. That's what happened. You know, praise the Lord. New saint walks into church. They're all excited. Praise the Lord, excited to live for the Lord. And they look over there and there's Father Time sitting in the pew. (laughs) 
wanted to tell them about all the past moves of God, how great it was, and how it was, you know, so bad now. Praise the Lord. I don't I honestly, Lord help me. I don't want to be a preacher that lives in the past. I want to be a preacher that has a vision for the future. I really do. Amen. So that's what the prophets did. Zechariah and Haggai said, don't, Zechariah said, don't despise the day of small thing. Haggai said, you haven't seen anything yet. This, hallelujah. Hallelujah. This future house is going to be greater than the former. There's better days coming. And, and, you know, so those old, those prophets were encouraging those old, old saints. Amen. All the, the old saints need to be encouraged sometime too, you know. Hallelujah. Praise God. You know what I mean, Brother Timothy? How long have you been in the church now? Ten years. You're kidding me. Right? You want me to ask your wife? Yeah, how long, sister? It's eight years, brother. <laughs> Well, I'll give you two more years. <laughs> but if you're not careful, you'll start going around and start talking to Brother Timothy. And he, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, <laughs> not really. Amen. Let's be careful. Let us be careful, all right? And I, I, there is times, as I said, there is times to weep over the failures of the church but there's a time to shout as you see a new a new thing God raises up out of failure and, and so we need to keep that in mind just for the sake of reading so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of weeping of the people for the people shouted with a loud shout and the noise was heard afar off amen so you can't go by your heart you can't go by your feelings the Word of God, the covenant of God, you can't go by your feelings. You start going by your feelings, man, it'll mess you up. It really will. Amen. So stay focused on the Word of God. Please stand. Let's worship the Lord. Let's thank Him for His goodness. Father, we thank You today. We join tonight that host of people that had gathered as one man. They gathered there to establish the true worship of the living God again. We are thankful today. We, we rejoice with them as they sing the praises of you, Lord. And they talked about your goodness and they talked about your mercy. And Lord, tonight we walk from this place with the same gratitude and the same worship in our life and heart. And we thank you, Lord, that you are seeking a people that will worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for your word tonight that we have the opportunity to obey it. Let us walk according to the pattern we've seen in this awesome book you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Lift your hands and love the Lord. Just thank God for all He's done. Oh God, You're awesome. You're wonderful. Thank You, Jesus, tonight. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, my King, my Savior, my God. I love You in Jesus' name. Amen. I love every one of you. You're dismissed in the name of the Lord. Have a blessed week.